in the Sam Mendes film 1917, Lance Corporal Schofield has been tasked with crossing through enemy-infested territory to deliver crucial news of a secret ambush to the British front lines. Schofield is giving a warning about the commanding officer to whom he's delivering the letter. He's told, make sure there are witnesses. Some men just like to fight. The instruction is sobering. Even though Schofield is bringing direct orders to stand down, which will save thousands of lives, he is cautioned that the orders might be ignored. Why? Because regardless of the superior command to stand down, regardless of the cost, regardless of the impossible odds and the careless death that would ensue, there is a zeal for battle in some that overrides all sense. When you feel built for war, when you long for the rush of conflict, not warring feels like cowardly. It feels like uselessness. Pointlessness. So some men just like to fight. But these aren't real men. Real men are willing to fight when it's necessary. Fake men are itching to fight no matter what. Fighting is sometimes necessary. Liking to fight is not. In fact, it's forbidden. Think about yourself. What do you tend to fight about the most? In your house, what do you fight about? I can tell you in my house and kind of the stage of life that we're in right now, the things that cause the biggest arguments are when things get misplaced and when our schedules aren't communicated. It happens a lot, I've noticed, when we're getting ready to go somewhere. Right? We're getting ready to leave. Everyone's in a hurry. We're running behind. Emotions are high. And then come the accusations. Where did you put my shoes? Where, where did you put my water bottle? Right? We, we begin with, with accusations. You used it last. And immediately, the person you're talking to gets defensive. Conflict. Fighting. Quarrel. Today, I want to teach you a truth from God's Word that can be a game changer in your life. If you grasp this truth today and apply it, it will transform your relationships at work and the frustration that you so often feel. If you understand the truth that we are unlocking today, it will help your parenting. It will help you love your children well. It will help you stop throwing grenades that blow up relationships that once were healthy. When you don't understand why certain people act the way they do, this truth will help you understand that. This truth from the book of James will help you understand the dark sides of yourself. The, the ugly hurtful things you say that catch you by surprise. You wonder, where did that come from? Why did I get so angry? What's going on inside of me? Not only that, when you see and apply this truth, when you go online and you see headlines about conflict, you'll understand the real issue. But when you read about Israel and Palestine and crisis at the border and politicians attacking each other, you'll know why. 
This principle gives the reason for so many of the questions that we ask. Like, why did mom and dad get divorced? Why do I lose my cool when I drive in traffic? How can the the same child that, that I lovingly curl up next to at bedtime can cause me to go ballistic the next moment? Why does this happen? So why do we fight and quarrel? James 4 tells us. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Would you please stand as we read God's word together? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives, shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. First of all, James shows us the cause of conflict. What is the cause of our conflict? In verse 1, he asks, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Among you. Remember, James is writing to Christians. So he's talking about fighting amongst believers. Conflict within the church. And to James, this is an outrageous evil. Now, why is fighting destructive? Why why is fighting in the church among believers, why is it so tragic? Well, because the destruction comes from two directions. Not only does fighting and quarreling cripple a church's internal ministries, but it also cripples the church's external witness. It hurts the church inside, and it hurts the church from the outside. You see, Jesus, he said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you you love one another. Unnecessary fighting is the opposite of that. If if you fight with one another, then the world will not know you are Christ's disciples. If you're fighting and quarreling, the world will not know who Jesus is. Now, James here is not talking about disagreements. As a church grows and ministry expands, healthy conflict is expected. What James is writing about is fighting, division, disunity. 
James chapter 3, verse 15, he calls this earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Recently at uh, a meeting, one of our elders, John Diener, he said, disagreement is inevitable. Disunity is a choice. That is so true. You will disagree with people. But to cause division and disunity, that is a choice. And that is what James is talking about here. Notice where the fighting comes from. If you continue in verse 1, he says, Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? We are not naturally humble people. Nobody in this room is naturally a humble, submissive, quiet person. Rather, we are stubborn and we are demanding at heart. And what James does is he connects the external, visible behavior with the internal core issues of our heart and soul. Here's the ugly, un- ugly and uncomfortable truth. The causes of the fights and quarrels among us in all of our relationships is my desire. My desire. Now, that word desires is the Greek word hedone, from which we get the word hedonist, which is a person who pursues his or her own pleasures. That's a hedonist, a a pleasure seeker. And it says these desires for pleasure, these immediate pleasures, these immediate satisfactions, they battle within us. That word for battle is the Greek word strateo. It's where we get the word strategy. These desires are not dormant. They are in the middle of us, and they are strategizing how they can be met. They have a cause, and they are battling for that cause. And James says that is the reason why we have conflict and tension in every relationship we see in the world. Donald Kagan, a Yale historian, he wrote a book called On the Origins of War. He says, Statistically, war has been more common than peace. And extended periods of peace have been rare and a world divided into multiple states. Why is that? It's because multiple states in this world have desires that battle within them, and they want those desires to be fulfilled. Will Durant, a famous historian, said that out of the 3,400 years of recorded human history, There are less than 268 years of known peace. The tensions build, but the peace evaporates. War breeds, but peace dies. As Charlie Brown says, friends may come and go, but enemies accumulate. And we know what that's like. James takes takes away the veil, and he says to us, to the church, Let's not pretend, no no false uh, pretense here, no fake remedies. What's true in the world is true in the church, unless, unless we know this truth and we take active steps against it in the power of Jesus. So here's what James is saying. We get into fights because of pleasures that we desire for ourselves. And when we don't get what we want, we fight. And this happens in churches all the time. How? 
want to give you just a few examples. This happens when there is inflexibility around non-essential issues. You insist on having your way, and you refuse to budge. Right? And we're talking about preferences here. We're not talking about the mission of the church. We're not talking about doctrine. We're talking about preferences. That, that inability to budge. We see this happen in the church when there is a selfish desire for authority where you want status and you want admiration from others, and so you try to work your way into a position where you will be seen instead of serving from a place of humility. Where you want to be recognized and acknowledged, and so that becomes your motivation instead of following God's call on your life. We see this happen in churches when you criticize others. Where you have something that... that that you care about, something that uh, you see differently than, than somebody else, and what do you do? You belittle them. You put down their position in order to bolster yourself up and make yourself look good. And these are selfish desires. Unchecked desires and unnecessary conflict produce unhealthy churches. So each and every one of us, we have to ask ourselves, what personal desire am I trying to protect or gain? What desire do I have that, that I'm trying to, to protect and hold on to? What desire do I have that I'm trying to reach out and grab? Because what, what happens oftentimes is if the person doesn't get their way, then they're like the kid on the playground who takes their ball and goes home. Only they just hop to a different church. They try, to, try it all over again there. It's like the story of the man who was stranded on a deserted island in the Pacific for many years. And one day there was a boat that came sailing into view, and the man frantically waved, and he got the captain's attention. The boat landed on the beach, and the captain got out to greet the stranded man. After a while, the rescuing sailor asked the castaway, What are those three huts that you've built? The stranded man replied, that first hut is my house. Well, what's the next hut, the sailor asked. I built that for my church. Well, what about the third hut? Oh, the man said. He looked down at the ground. That's where I used to go to church. Recently, there was a, an argument in our home, and I made the comment, where did you put my keys? And the response was, I didn't put them anywhere. And so I go on about my business, but in my head I'm thinking, well, I know I didn't have them last. I know I didn't move them. They were here when I left. And even though I didn't say this out loud, my reaction reveals the same sort of selfishness that, that James is talking about. These desires that battle within you. My desire is to be right. My desire is to look out for myself. So would you believe it? I can't find them anywhere inside. I walk outside. And I'm looking in the driveway and I'm looking in the grass thinking maybe they fell down somewhere. And I can't find them anywhere. And when I'm about ready to go back inside and just give up the search, there in the door are my keys. They had been out there all night long. You see, this was last month, a few weeks ago, when we had those 
below zero days, the negative 25 wind chill days, and I got home that evening, and in my hurry to get inside to a warm house, when I unlocked the door, I shut the door and I left my keys right there. And my pride, my selfishness got in the way, and it led to unnecessary conflict. And I'm telling you, fighting won't fix what your selfishness started. Fighting is not going to fix what your selfishness started. Fighting is the symptom. Your selfish desires are the cause. Secondly, James has us recognize the consequences of conflict. We've seen the cause. Now he takes us to the consequences. And they are serious. James says in verse 4, you adulterous people. This isn't just a behavior issue we're talking about here. This goes straight to the core of who I am. When I allow unchecked selfish desires to run my life, and I insist on getting my way or else, James says there is something very wrong at the core of our commitment. There is an adulterous heart spiritually. Verse 4 continues, Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So what are the consequences of conflict? Number one, we've already seen, it's conflict and damaged relationships with one another. The second consequence is that we become enemies with God. It sounds familiar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and and love the other. And what James is saying, if you pursue your own desires, then you've made the choice to run your life. You've allowed something to become an idol in your life, and you are actually against God. You've become a friend of the world. And when Scripture talks about the world, it's talking about the patterns of human life that are contrary to God's will. So in Romans 12, when Paul says, don't conform to the patterns of this world, he's talking about a way of life that is at odds with the way of God. The third consequence to conflict is we grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 says, or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. When we came to faith and said, Christ, you are my Lord and Savior, and I'm going to follow you. And we surrender to the waters of baptism, and we receive the Spirit that calls us and teaches us and is jealous over us with a protective kind of jealousy. But when we choose to live for our own desires, what we're saying is we're saying, I don't need the Spirit to teach me. I know what's best. I know what I need, and you better believe I'm going to get it. I'm going to do it my way. And that grieves the Holy Spirit. And that is why a Christian who habitually lives in sin, or a Christian who habitually lives with a hardened heart, is a miserable person. Because the spirit that God freely gave to us has been quenched. It has been stopped and stunted. And so we grieve the Holy Spirit. 
Take a good look at somebody who stops at nothing to pursue their own selfish desires, and what you will find is conflict in their relationships, a hardened heart towards God, and a failure to listen to the voice of the Spirit that wants to teach them and provide for them and guide them. We see the cause of conflict. We've seen the consequences of conflict. Third, James shows us the cure for conflict. What's the cure? Of everything you hear today, I believe this is the most important. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. If you and I are going to live in harmony with one another, we need more than a change in behavior. We need healed hearts. And repentance is the cure. What conflict kills, humility heals, and repentance repairs. What conflict kills relationally, both vertically and horizontally, humility heals, and repentance restores. But it's not easy. It's like a person in in physical therapy, somebody who is rehabbing a serious injury. Sometimes the healing hurts. It's like pouring salt in a wound. James says that repentance means submission. And submission's hard. We don't like to submit. Submission requires that we give up control. It's where we go to God and we lay down our arms. We say, I'm done fighting. I'm done being in control. Repentance means that you come near to God. To repent means to turn. That you're going one way, you repent, you turn, and you go 180 degrees in the other direction. And when you turn, you will see that God is there waiting. It's the picture of the prodigal. Repentance means deep sorrow. When we see how our desires have have wasted time and devalued other persons, squandered resources, and fed our selfishness, there is a grief and sorrow. When the Holy Spirit reveals to us who we are, it is not a pretty sight. But I want you to notice that in this passage, the sorrow is lovingly surrounded with assurance. That even though God opposes the proud, he shows favor and grace to the humble. Even more grace. And notice it says, if we submit to God and we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And if we come near to God, he will come near to you. Deep sorrow, but great assurance. What does this repentance look like? It looks like the woman who, for example, realizes that that everything that she's done and every person she's affected in her life has been for the sake of control. 
And, and though it looked good and the house was clean and, and the large family gathering was nice and everybody was well taken care of, the horrifying realization is the Holy Spirit reveals that you did this out of prideful, selfish, demanding concern. And no one can pin it on you, but, but in your heart it's there. You had a strategy and you did it well, but it was demanding. This repentance looks like the man who, for example, let his anger and fear fuel his children's performances. He wants to look good and he wants to be successful. And so the stuff and the opportunities and, and the coaching and the travel and all of these things, were accompanied by rage and force because his strategy was, you're here to make me feel secure. My desire is that you look good so that I will look good. And when we see that in our hearts, we realize that we are not naturally humble people. We are selfish people. And try as we may, we cannot fix this on our own. Only God can help us. That's what he wants. There was a father who watched through the kitchen window as his small son attempted to lift a large stone out of his sandbox. The boy was frustrated as he wrestled with the heavy object because he couldn't get enough leverage to, to lift it out. Finally, the boy gave up and he sat down on the edge of the sandbox with his head in his hands, dejected. The father went outside and said, son, what's wrong? Can't you lift the rock out? No, Dad, the son said. I can't do it. Have you used all the strength that's available to you? The father asked. Yeah, Dad, the boy replied. No, you haven't, the father said. You haven't asked me to help you. James says that when we humble ourselves, he will lift us up. When we repent and we turn from doing things our way, we lay down our arms, we submit our lives to Him, He will lift us up. Do you want to stop the fighting and conflict that you experience in so many of your relationships? You'll never stop fighting with each other until you first stop fighting with God. It's nothing less than full dependence. So as we wrap up today, I want to ask you a couple of questions. One is where have you allowed a disagreement to turn into disunity? Where have you allowed a disagreement to turn into disunity? Where right now are you in conflict with someone else? Who are you at odds with right now? What fight or conflict is, is causing disunity? And the call is simple. Repent. Repent today. Because not only does your relationship need healing, not only does your heart need healing, but our world needs Scripture describes the church as the bride and Christ as the husband. 
And you know, there is nothing more beautiful than a bride on her wedding day. She has a glow. Her dress is perfect. Her hair is done just right. Her makeup is immaculate. So can you imagine what people would think if if right before the wedding, the bride got into a nasty fight with her bridesmaids? And her dress was ripped and muddy. Her hair was disheveled. She had an ugly black eye from getting punched in the face. The audience would be shocked and appalled. It's, It's unimaginable. This is what it's like when the bride the church of Jesus fights among itself. We are dragging the bride through the mud and nobody wins. Everybody loses. Because God eventually turns out the light on churches that fight. Eventually, God will remove the lamp from the lampstand. And that church will split. That church will shut its doors. That once healthy growing church, living on mission, will cease to have effective ministry. Yeah, they may meet every week. But it's a church that's no longer being used by God. In Bachelor Creek, I'm telling you, our mission is too important. Our call is too great to ever allow that to happen. Our world needs to see Jesus for who he is. And the way that people see Jesus is through us. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you Love one another. So let us be a church. Let us be a people that humbly submit to God. That repent of our selfish desires and receive the grace that he so generously gives. There's nothing as ugly as a fighting church. But repentance is that much more beautiful. God, I pray today that we would humbly fall on our knees before you and submit to you. God, today we repent. God, individually, for fighting and division and disunity we may have caused either in our own relationships or in the church. God, I pray that through laying our arms down, we would we would come to a place where we find healing. Healing in fractured relationships. Healing with you. And God, I pray that we would experience a, a unity that when those who aren't followers of you, that those in the world see the unity that, that your bride, the church, experiences, it would cause them to want to know who you are. That they would see Jesus as he truly is, as Savior and Lord. So God, we lay it before you. We repent. We grieve over the sorrow of our sin. And we thank you for the assurance that you give us Jesus' name we pray. Amen.